The world around us continues to change rapidly, and in large part in response to the emerging technologies we have available to us. The internet, smartphones, social media. It can feel overwhelming. Yet when seen through the lens of how the spiritual world operates in the physical world, we can leverage this novel terrain for our collective benefit. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around to hear my conversation with futurist Dylan Hendricks, a research director at the Institute for the Future. We vision cast about the nature of the world we live in and its connection to heaven. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, digs deeper into the mystery of why Swedenborg left the work Apocalypse Explained unfinished. Then we travel to 1745, when Swedenborg left another work unfinished and embarked on a study of the Bible that would catalyze his spiritual transformation this week in history. All right, this past week's topic on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel was on how advanced technology originates in heaven. And that Swedenborg and Life show can be watched on uh, the YouTube channel or listen to it as a podcast on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel. And in this show, we explored how technology today actually reflects the various phenomena that Swedenborg observed happening in the spiritual world. And this is a super fun topic. And so today I actually have a special guest to discuss this subject with me further. And that's Dylan Hendricks. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And so you are, correct me if I'm wrong, but a research director at the Institute for the Future. Yes. Or how would you describe your title? Is that right? Yeah, it depends who I'm talking to. A lot of the time I get described as like a futurist, but I, I describe myself as a research director because it sounds more like a, a normal human occupation. Um, oh, nice. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and you do interesting things about thinking about the future and stuff. Well, that's that's why I'm happy to have you here. And it was, uh, you know, for people listening, it was great to get to reach out to you um, when we were working on this show, um, How Advanced Technology Originates in Heaven, because you not only work at the Institute for the Future and are a futurist, but you're someone who was raised with a Swedenborgian worldview. And so you kind of uh, think about the nature of our world and the future, but also have within your, you know, uh, mindset, these ideas that Swedenborg wrote about, about the spiritual world and the nature of life and stuff. And so I'd love to hear from you about how, how that knowledge, you know, the spiritual world and everything influences your thoughts, particularly on like this, the nature of how the world's technology is advancing so rapidly. Like, it just seems like we are in a world that is uh, every day. I mean, there's new technologies coming out, it seems like. And I just wonder how that, uh, how the two fit together in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and thanks yeah, so much for inviting me. I love thinking about these things. I, as you mentioned, I have had deep immersions in Swedenborgian uh, theology and, and um, I went to Bernathan College, have a degree in psychology and religion from there. And, and then, yeah, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the Bay Area. I now live in Austin, Texas, but really immersed in a lot of emerging technologies. And 
thinking a lot about them. I have a lot of kind of media background as well. And so thinking about using these technologies in different ways. And, um, but I think, you know, the, the, the big picture for me, what I really appreciate so much about um, the, the Swedenborgian works and what they provide in terms of this kind of world building material around how we think about the spiritual world uh, as opposed to the natural world and the way that we experience the natural world as opposed to the way that angels and spirits experience it in the spiritual world. Uh, I really appreciate how how much that's it's also sort of not something that's discontinuous. Like in so many other theologies, it's not something where it's like, oh, when I get to heaven, then I'll experience it this way, but it's totally different. There's this, this real sense that you are kind of, you have a foot, you know, sort of in both worlds throughout your life. And that a lot of our sort of psychological experiences is, is really just sort of influx from the spiritual world. Um, and so, you know, I think you could, a, a good place to start is just even thinking about how um, Swedenborg describes the way that time and space work in the spiritual world and um, how, uh, you know, that there's this idea that we experience time and space in these very sort of discrete kind of predefined ways in the natural world that are there to kind of keep us on rails, to kind of keep us grounded in freedom so we don't fly off too far in one direction or another. Yes. You know, and particularly you could even start with just thinking about how in the spiritual world it's described that when you are thinking about somebody that they are close to you, right? And this is described as a huge contrast from the natural world, that in the natural world we're spatially distant, especially when Swedenborg was writing in the 18th century, that you have this sort of real constraints on people's movement. Most people uh, don't get to experience much around maybe, you know, a few dozen miles around from where they're born. And so the world is this kind of vast place with lots of people that people don't have access to. And, and the, the spiritual world is described as this place where you are affiliated with people sort of geographically based off of your affection and your shared affections. And yeah, just even, you know, I think that just the idea that you can sort of summon somebody in the spiritual world and they're present to you, there are so many ways in which that has become dramatically more true for our lived experience of the natural world just in our lifetimes, right? Um, yes. The internet in general and this ability to, like we are now, right? We're not physically in the same place at all. Um, and yet, we kind of had this idea, we wanted to do this, and, and the ability to just connect like this, that has created such a different world. And, and it's it's so interesting, I think, you know, maybe later on, we can talk about too, about how, as we have gotten more kind of abilities in this world that are seemingly similar to the ones in the spiritual world, that we're also not quite, um, it hasn't like turned the world into heaven, exactly, right? Like, we're, right. <laughs> we're, we're dealing with a lot of the complexities of those as well. Yeah, well, I think that's like, that's what I find so fascinating where you get to sit in your work especially is that like so we we were able to create this show you know because of uh how the nature of how the spiritual world how we have a foot in both worlds like you were saying so we can take what Swedenborg says about the way that representatives act in the spiritual world and then think about oh look how that reflects our technologies that we are having now uh it's becoming you know that's easy for us to see, but, you know, Swedenborg was writing in the 1700s. And, um, and so, but then here you are as somebody who is navigating, uh, or, or keeping up to speed on a lot of the emerging technologies in, in our world. And yet we are still, there's still that nature of sort of free choice. Like just because mm -hmm. you, just because you know, Oh, this is how it works in heaven. That that isn't necessarily a guarantee in our world, even though in some way something's happening because we are advancing in our technology and and 
you know, seeming to reflect the spiritual world more. Uh, and yet, you know, what, what does that mean? Like, are, are the stakes just that much higher now, do you think? Because the, we have these advanced technologies, but, but we really could use them in, we still have that free choice where we could use it in a, a lot of different ways for good and for ill, you know? Right, exactly. I do, I do think the stakes are higher. Yeah. And I do think it's in a way that is maybe a, of a piece of all of our kind of evolution from throughout sort of the, the evolution of humanity that as we become more aware of who we are and what our choices are, you know, that, that there's a responsibility that comes with that because we, we are kind of acquiring power and agency that we can use for, for good or ill. And, and obviously the whole spectrum of those use cases is always being demonstrated in that way. And I think, um, as we, you know, I think about something like virtual reality, right? So this is an emerging technology. Um, our emerging media lab at the Institute for the Future does a lot of work on emerge on virtual reality. I've spent a lot of time in virtual reality myself, and yeah. he here you have sort of a new technology that is only getting better all the time. Um, and it's it, within a few years, it's going to become something. Even now, with like the Oculus Quest, it's it's very like kind of consumer friendly kind of technology. It's it's uh, accelerated very quickly, and it creates this other kind of possibility space that that feels in some ways similar to the way that the the laws of the spiritual world are described where Swedenborg has a lot of memorable relations where he talks about how in the spiritual world also that the 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 kind of logic of the world is less fixed than it is here and so your kind of psychological state your spiritual state is manifested around you and so the things that you're thinking either consciously or subconsciously you know, maybe a garden becomes more beautiful as an angel walks through it or, or something like that. Um, yeah. And that virtual reality kind of creates a possibility space where you can experience things like that, where you can manifest any experience that you can think of and potentially create experiences that are kind of more and more directly related to your impulses. Um, and that, I think, that reality of that technology existing, and you and I both have small children, so I think about this a lot for my son and my daughter, who are five and seven, that this technology will just be ubiquitous like smartphones are by the time they're teenagers. And so I think it's more important for them. They're, they're not going to have a choice, even as a kind of a generational cohort, but to be more aware of the responsibility of what it is that they're manifesting in their own minds because they're going to be create, able to create their own hellish experiences or their own more heavenly experiences or somewhere in between yeah. so easily that the literacy of, of knowing like what to do with that power is going to become, yeah, like higher stakes. It's going to be possible for people to, uh, and we already start to see this, this is an, an unfamiliar concept even in the world now with the internet, that to, so you can get just kind of lost in your own sort of obsessions or addictions just so incredibly easily. And if you want to connect people with a common interest in order to collaborate on something like a show like this, both of those things have never been easier. So, yeah, right. It, it really does. I think it's going to force a kind of like a crucible. It's, I think it's going to force us to become more aware of our um, our, our spiritual literacies and, and particularly in that kind of psychological aspect, which I think Swedenborg was just so strong. His, you know, he informed so much of modern psychology, but that's always been the the through line for me between these two things is that. Swedenborg describes a lot of how how we get like why we have bad thoughts in our head or, or certain aspects of mm -hmm. certain kinds of depression or things. And so, yeah, I think that literacy is going to become more more viscerally um, necessary. People are going to be more aware that they need some guiding internal discipline in order to not just spin off the rails because of uh, experiences that are in front of them that allow them to do that. 
Yeah. And that, that reminds me of something that came up when I was talking to you or our exchange earlier when working on this show was, and it's sitting before my eyes in like an even clearer way of just how in our moment in time and really in our lifetimes, uh, since we've lived through the dawn of the smartphone and everything and virtual technologies that, uh, you know, this, the acceleration is forcing us to think about what it really means to be human, you know, like it, it's, and that's, so something I remember you mentioning was that like, uh, that's, that's kind of what these technologies give to us is this opportunity to even refine more and more what is really the nature of like, what is goodness and what is evil and how do we, what does it mean to be a, a good human being in the world or a real human, you know, or something like our humanity. Yeah. And that definition of that is getting so much more like minute. Um, I feel like in the nature that our kids, like it's hard for me as a parent to sort of, I try to guide my kids and like, well, this is what I think would be a good use of social media or these devices, you know, how much screen time, all this stuff. But the truth is that it's like our kids and this next generation are the ones who are really going to be able to think deeply and sort of from a more philosophical perspective about the, the nature of what these technologies present to them and then how that leads them in, you know, self-actualization. From a Swedenborgian perspective, these technologies are really going to help us further that uh, knowledge, I guess, is yeah. what we would predict. Like, is that, do you feel that way? I, I really do. Yeah. There's, uh, I can't remember exactly what the passage is, but there's a few times where Swedenborg specifically sort of talks about how humans can't really understand spiritual concepts unless we have a natural analog, some kind of metaphor that's tied to the space and time that that we experience that yeah. allows us to sort of get a, a sense of it, right? And and so the writings are are mostly that. They're mostly full of like, well, this is like the sun or this is like a geode or, you know, and, and yes. he does all of these very intentional metaphors that that help us to kind of lock in what's going on. And so I think as we have these technologies that are like literally kind of demonstrating some of these principles that we won't be able to but help but have those metaphors um, be, be sort of a, a tool for digging deeper and having... Um, maybe more than anything, kind of a, a shared sort of literacy, the shared ability to say, you know, like, this is like a virtual reality experience in some ways, or this is like uh, the internet in some ways. And that's been, you know, if you go through sort of the history of psychology, you can really sort of track it to different eras where the kind of, there was sort of a, a fundamental kind of technology metaphor that's been at the forefront of how we think about the brain, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like we had yeah. Freud talked a lot about like, steam engines and steam in our brains and pressure and releasing it. And, and then we've been using kind of computers as sort of the dominant metaphor with neuroscience and, um, and thinking about the brain as a processor. And so I think that the next kind of step for that really is this concept of, of simulations of this idea that we can experience something that isn't actually happening to us, but is real in the sense that we're experiencing it and can impact it with our interactions. And that that creates that, that kind of sort of reality, non-reality sort of blurring, I think is going to, uh, for one, it's going to unmoor people from what, what is reality up until you can kind of define, answer that question with, I think, sort of answers that are deeper, which I, I do think, you know, uh, I haven't seen anything better than what's kind of come out of Swedenborg and thought in terms of how, how do you anchor yourself in a world that is where you have this kind of natural and the spiritual dimension happening simultaneously. That's true. That like the fact that Swedenborg even has a principle that helps us understand 
technology <laughs> is amazing and that it works yeah. even beyond his time. This, this principle that the natural world is here for us to learn about the nature of our spiritual selves and the nature of the spiritual world and life and heaven and everything. And, and so it would just be the natural like connection to that, that as we advance in our sciences, first of all, you know, like our ability to probe mm -hmm. the natural world, but then create technologies based on that advanced understanding of the world is going to further our ability to understand the nature of spiritual life and, and heaven and God. If we think of this era that we're entering into of all these kind of technologies of our lifetime, I sometimes think of that as like the hyper-connected era, just sort of as a catch-all for mm -hmm, these technologies mm -hmm. that, that connect us to each other in these crazy new ways, these more direct uh, and global ways that, it, like you say, it, it's, it's totally sort of, it, it kind of forces us, I think, to not throw everything out, but to reassess all of our assumptions because there's going to be nuanced ways in which most of the way that we even articulated our assumptions maybe isn't valid anymore or never was or just needs to adapt in some way. And so there's this process of kind of breaking things down before we can build back up from the, the, the rules of the world as we now experience it. And my hope would be that that's what we're in, right? And that we, yeah. my hope would be that our children will, will be looking at these things and th they're going to be able to not have the sort of some of the things to let go of that we do, but also they'll be able to look at like, like, oh, it looks like every adult is addicted to smartphones. Maybe we shouldn't do that, right? That'll be <laughs> yes, something they'll like yes. wrestle with as they come of age. Yeah, well, I, I'm with, I'm with you on that. And I feel like our, it is, it is cool to think about, you know, it all fits into Swedenborg's concept of, of regeneration and that we're each mm -hmm. individually on this path, but then collectively, it's really interesting to think about a generational aspect of of community wide uh, regeneration, and that there really is such a a gift and a mercy in having these. We have kids, and they grow up, and they don't have to have the same. Uh, they they have an easier time, kind of. Uh, sloughing off the stuff that felt more burdensome for the high, uh, older generation, you know, to let go of, you know, they can sort of see more clearly. And, and that seems like an amazing uh, gift that, that does leave me feeling pretty uh, hopeful and optimistic about, about the whole, the whole world that we're living in and these rapidly advancing technologies. So thank you so much, Dylan, for vision casting with me this, <laughs> this week. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. It's important to do it. I think the, the world needs vision casting right now, right? There is a lot of reckoning with the, the evils that we haven't addressed in our own society in our past. And so I think that even though that feels awful as it's happening, as it's described, that that process feels awful in vastation or other parts of regeneration, that I'm hopeful that that's what it signifies, right? That we're actually, we're like, we're flushing the toxins out so that we can have the possibility of regenerating. Yep. And it takes takes each one of us using, you know, using our God-given sense of self to to make make those choices for ourselves and then collectively we we can change the world. So, thanks so much. I want to say for everybody listening that um this next week on the Off the Left Eye channel, we're going to be taking these concepts of correspondences and representations to the next level by exploring the spiritual link between the human brain and consciousness. So Dylan, you mentioned the way that our, even our ideas about the brain is reflected. We used our most advanced technologies to think about our own brains. And so yeah. all of these ideas really come together when you dig into what Swedenborg says about the brain. So um, 
everybody. You can catch that when it premieres on Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. And so, yeah, thanks so much, Dylan, for this inspiring conversation. All right. And now for our weekly NCE Spotlight, a chance to visit the uh, virtual desk of the NCE and see what discoveries are happening there. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Chelsea. It's fun to be here. And we were talking last time, if memory serves, about the mysteries, plural, surrounding Apocalypse Explained. Yes, that was fascinating to hear from you about. I had mentioned that I thought there were nine of these, you know, as far as my memory uh, could recollect them, and I found some list in my notes of nine mysteries. When I dug some more after our last episode, I found actually there were 15, and <laughs> I don't know if that's the end of the list or not, but the good news is we covered about six last time, Nice. so we hit a lot of those, and I'm planning on kind of quickly dealing with a few more and then and dwelling on a couple in particular this time. But Great. Uh, so one one little mystery was um, there's evidence that while Swedenborg was writing chapter three out of like he got halfway through chapter 19. He yes, already in the book felt, of Revelation, right. That's right. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, the, he already felt in chapter three, we have evidence from other manuscripts that uh, have cross-referenced to this manuscript, that he was already feeling that the British campaign had uh, failed or, or achieved disappointing results in some way. Mm-hmm. So he put London on the title page, as we talked about last time. Why keep going with something? You know, why not just drop it in chapter three? Why keep going the way that he went? That's a little mystery. Yeah. And we talked another time on uh, the podcast about the um, a mystery of the disappearing magnum opus. <laughs> and that's something that happens, which, in other words, references back to his giant work, Secrets of Heaven, started a high level in this work. And then almost chapter by chapter, they drop off till they're just about zero at the end. Yes, this is where that happens. Yes. Yeah, this is a key witness in that trial, you know, <laughs> what, what was going on there. And I also got intrigued. I actually added one to the list since our last time that hadn't been on any list before. It is interesting, like we talked last time about how he started inserting this extra material, like a parallel line of thought into the end of most of the numbers, the sections that he was writing. But it is still interesting why he cut back at the same time on the exegesis. Like he really stopped writing nearly so much. It, it, it shrank way down to just, you know, a couple of pages. And um, that's curious. But the two I wanted to talk about a little more is uh, why stop at 19 verse 10? Revelation 19 verse 10 is where he quits. He ultimately quits there. Yeah. Yeah. And never picks it up again. And um, <laughs> so one theory about it that came to me uh, when I was editing the shorter works of 1758 mm -hmm. is that one of those shorter works in 1758 is called White Horse. And White Horse begins with an explanation 
of Revelation chapter 19, oh. verse 11. Oh, Through wild. 16. <laughs> I never knew that, or I never put those two things together. So did he feel like, oh, wait a second, I already did this. I already did this. <laughs> because you may know at the end of Secrets of Heaven, when he got to material about the tabernacle that he'd already explained, he basically just stopped. <laughs> he, he just said, I've already covered this. Yes. You know, he's got a monstrous amount to do. It's not laziness on his part, you know, but he's got a monstrous amount to do. Did he kind of have that feeling of, oh, hang on, I, I already did this. So I got up to that point where I, you know, wrote about before. I don't know. It's intriguing. Interesting, yes. And the 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 number one thing I wanted to talk about this time was that uh, I think I may have mentioned last time that through the first 11 chapters— of the fair copy, in other words, the nice clean version getting ready for the printer, Mm -hmm. every eighth page was blank. Right. So I think he must have left every eighth page blank as room to edit the work. Maybe he'd have enough experience with writing and publishing by now that he realized, hey, there's always a little bit of a rewrite. So if you think about how big those... Not each seven pages worth of material uh, had another seventh, in other words, 14% he could have rewritten. Right. 14% yeah. is a pretty big edit. You know, he, mm. he could have done a lot of tweaking and rewriting of the work on all those eighth blank pages. And yet he did not. You know, why didn't he just edit? He'd put all that work into it. Why not just edit it, tweak it, or forget about the eighth page being blank? He could totally have just, you know, paper was expensive, but grab some more paper and, you know, keep writing and and tweak it from there. Why start from scratch, which is what he did when he did Revelation Unveiled or traditionally titled Apocalypse Revealed, the published work? Right. That's shorter. Uh, why start over again? He was obviously looking at these manuscripts when he wrote Apocalypse Revealed. Hmm. You can tell because he'll use the same scriptures in the same sequence, and you know he's leaning uh, on it yeah. as raw material, but his explanations are quite different. And so it makes me think that there must have been more than a 14% problem of some kind. I don't mean to express it negatively. Right. But he had some new vision, some new direction he wanted to go in. And that just kind of tweaking what was already there, it it was more than a tweak. He really had a fundamentally, I'm just making this up, but I think it makes sense that it it wasn't something you could just kind of fix in the mix. Uh, He really had such a different view of what he was doing, that he decided to just go back to page one and s- start again because he <laughs> he really understood things in a different way. I think Reverend Dr. Jim Lawrence is going to get into this in his introduction to Revelation Unveiled. Uh, that's, uh, I think, several years out from publication yet. Uh, but I just wanted to raise that mystery that that's another that's a really major mystery about this manuscript why didn't he once he got a chance pick up 
either at 1911 or at 1917 in Revelation and, or whatever and keep going. Yeah. And and why not use all those blank pages to to tweak it or get some other paper and and tweak it as somehow it was untweakable for what he realized he needed to do with it. Uh, and so he started again. That is so, so interesting. And especially because as we'll even get into in our next segment in this episode, but it was not a new thing for Swedenborg to do a major, a lot of work on a particular subject and then be like, mm, I didn't quite get it right. I'm going to start over from scratch. Oh, my goodness. Stuart Shotwell and I wrote an article uh, years ago. I think the title was Holding On and Letting Go. Uh, Swedenborg was remarkably persistent. I mean, he did his uh, booklet about the, the theory of how to find the longitude by means of the moon. He reissued that in four different editions over his lifetime. <laughs> uh, he was very persistent when it was time to be persistent. But when it was time to cut and run, he would just bolt. You know, yes. he, he, he didn't Scrap seem to that. be sentimental yep. about, no, okay, We'll fold it right now. Just walk know. away. You know, <laughs> take your hand off the pen and stand back from the table. <laughs> oh man! Oh, that's amazing. Oh well, this has been fun to explore a couple more of these uh, mysteries of apocalypse explained with you, and I look forward to hearing more next week. But now let's uh, move onward to see where Swedenborg was this week in history and what works he was working on then. Okay, so this week, we are going back to 1745, this week in history. And um, at this time in November of 1745, Swedenborg is doing one of these things that we were just mentioning in the last segment, where he is transitioning from one work that touches on the story of creation, drops that and starts a new work, starting fresh this study of of uh, of Genesis and and beyond, and so um, he was transitioning from writing the work, the worship and love of God, and then starts writing the word explained. And the Latin title, strictly translated, is the historical word of the Old Testament explained. Mm-hmm. So the worship and love of God. He published two parts of it, but did he did he envision that it would have three parts, or was it just that part three happened to be where he stopped? Well, when you're talking about stopping, um, in part three, if memory serves, he not only had some manuscript pages of it prepared, but he had actually handed some pages to the printer, and the printer made proofs hmm. of some of the pages and if memory serves, it stops in mid-sentence at the bottom of the page, uh, just like we were just talking about. He just, uh, nope, not doing it. Yes. It's very curious. And so that um, portion that was not actually published, uh, and the manuscript too sort of peters out at some point. It, it's not complete yes. if memory serves. And so uh, people have taken that and and published it, you know, put it in with the rest of the work. But but uh, that was the status of that part three. Oh, so fascinating. And so 
That gets left unfinished, and it's this week in November of 1745 that he is embarking on this work called The Word, Word Explained, which we've touched on in previous uh, episodes of the podcast because he does the same thing again later where he leaves Word Explained unfinished and starts Secrets of Heaven. That's what he does next. And he's working on worship and love of God. And it was something that you mentioned to me about it that I hadn't known before, which is that he's writing about the creation story, but he's not like directly studying the Bible. It's only after he, uh, afterwards, he's he decides to go back and get, gets inspired to sort of actually look at the text of Genesis again. Do I have that right? That's right. And it makes me think that he, um, that he was, I don't know, kind of lured into it. You know, I think he was free at every step. Sure. But uh, Worship and Love of God has a lot of um, some science and philosophy and kind of um, blue sky thinking about creation. And so it uses figures like Adam and, you know, Eve, the Garden of Eden, things like that. But he's not quoting scripture or expounding it. Right. And... um and then there's this amazing um, a statement that he gives later that came to light uh, where it sounds as though while he was writing that, he wasn't even really bothering to look at Genesis. He was just working off of, I don't know, he had been very exposed to the book his whole life. He no doubt sure. learned it in school. They talked about it at the dinner table. He'd been to many sermons, as everybody did, every Sunday. And and so he, he'd heard all about it. Uh, apparently, at the time, didn't feel he needed to sort of look at the text. But after the first two parts were in print, it seems that he went back and checked what he had written against what Genesis actually says. And so I'm interested in... <laughs> how, okay, you write what you think first, and then I'll just entice you to go look at the text. Uh, and so he takes a look, and he's amazed at the agreement. He's really kind of pleasantly surprised that yeah. actually it worked out better than he thought. And that that somehow inspires him to like, oh, I want to dig into this more. And he starts writing uh the word explained. And it kind of takes this major detour where he starts, it's when he's doing this study of the Bible um, in word, ex word explained that his spiritual experiences start really reaching new heights. And he starts indenting his paragraphs and it's the beginning of, of spiritual experiences and what would become that manuscript because he just, he keeps having to like, oh wait, hang on. Just when I was studying this part of the Bible, these spiritual things started happening to me that I have to record. And there seems to have been some thought in his mind about publication because in some of those indented paragraphs, he'll say, uh, when it comes time to print, see whether I should keep this material in here or not. <laughs> right, right. Interestingly, uh, and I was hardly aware of this, but um, there's actually a stepping stone that came between Worship and Love of God and Word Explained which is called the history of creation. And in this little work, he goes through the first three chapters of Genesis and even includes a statement looking back on worship and love of God. Hmm. And this is where he says that he was amazed at the agreement. And he sort of looks through in this manuscript, 
let's look at the first three chapters and see how I did. And he just writes some, some things about it. And that seems to be a stepping stone to, okay, okay, let's start again. And I've really got to dig into this. This is interesting. And I think he got drawn into scripture sort of through this kind of science and philosophy door. Yes. Of writing about creation, but then being drawn into, um, and all the while he's having these spiritual experiences, as you say. Which, yeah, which like I, I forgot to mention, but you know, it, it is this fa- these fascinating little turning points because um, he was writing, he left a, a different work unfinished, which was The Soul's Domain, um, and uh, he, he stops that, and, and it's, he actually gets inspired in a dream, the title of Worship and Love of God, and he gets, it's this shift from leaving that more scientific, philosophical work, and then Worship and Love of God is this turn into much more of a theological domain, um, which then directs him to the text of the Bible itself, where he does this little oh. study in the history of creation, and then launches into Word Explained. So it, 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 they really are these stepping stones. It seems like the spiritual world is taking over his life. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, if memory serves, the animal kingdom... Uh, the, the sorry, the soul's domain, that's the traditional title of it, which is very misleading, as I think we talked about in another yes, podcast, yeah. that um, that was planned to be in 17 parts, 4,000 pages long, and he only did two and, and then dropped it. You know, there were some manuscripts, I think, for part three, but but there again, it was sort of like, no, that's that's not what we're doing. I had this dream, you know, yes. and so to see him. So it's kind of an exciting moment that we're celebrating in this podcast where he kind of, okay, look at this guy. You know, it's he's 57 years old and, okay, I'll start again. Yes. <laughs> with something as grand as the Bible, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down and really dig into this. One of the first things he says in the manuscript is about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's talking very much as if there's still a separate trinity of persons. You know, he's right. not where he ended up in his theology. Which, which Curtis has mentioned before in this podcast is that sense of the voice is so different. It's Because different. he starts writing Word Explained, and that really just becomes this foundation for him for the next two years, uh, almost, where he's... Uh, going through the Bible, having these elaborate spiritual experiences that start taking up more and more of the page. Um, and and he's changing inside in a lot of ways so that ultimately in the summer of 1747, that's when uh, he has that experience of saying that he was changed into the heavenly kingdom in an in image, which we focused on in one of our podcast episodes. Um, and it's after that that he does his amazing trick again where he's willing to stop word explained right where it is and start all the way back at the beginning with Genesis one for secrets of heaven and word explained is something like nine volumes, right? In in the English translation, it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah. It was thousands and thousands of manuscript pages, Uh, a very big work. And George Dahl has done some fascinating research. I think he's got a book that's coming out about uh, sort of seeing how Swedenborg starts to take scripture 
more personally in mm. the course of Word Explained and oh, how he kind of gradually starts to let go of some of the his his understanding. It's I really see that um I think Swedenborg needed to get hooked up with scripture to do what he did. Yes. And so Worship and Love of God was an interesting stepping stone to get him to crack the Bible and then once he starts reading, he sees, Oh, I've got to um yeah, I've got to get deeper into this. What, what does this mean? And it starts to change his thinking, and he sees new insights as he goes. That is so fascinating. So that is an exciting moment to be, like you said, celebrating this week in history in November 1745. And so thanks, Jonathan, for exploring that with me. Interesting time of year to start again, isn't it? Right. <laughs> Swedenborg is always surprising us. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And if you want to give us a boost, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. To become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, Go to otle.causevox.com to support our work with a donation. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. (laughs) 